Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, William Buckite. William has worked as a journalist in the upstate of South Carolina for nearly two decades. He has won dozens of South Carolina Press Association awards and was named the 2011 Reporter of the Year by the South Carolina's chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. He is also a part-time college English instructor and acclaimed wildlife photographer whose photos of the great white shark have been published by National Geographic and the Smithsonian. His book, The South Carolina State Hospital, Stories from Bull Street, was published by Arcadia Press this year. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Curtis, for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Great to have you with us. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in the history of the South Carolina State Hospital. Well, I've been, uh, I went to graduate school at at the University of South Carolina, so I was no stranger to Columbia. Um, And around 2010, I started getting into photography, which was kind of, has become a new pastime of mine um, over the last decade. I I, I got in 100% really. But uh, as of 2010, I was just getting into it. I was actually at a bookstore at a Barnes and Noble here in in Greenville, which is where I live. And um, I came up called Asylum by a a guy called Christopher Payne. And he's a... um, uh, acclaimed photographer up in New York City. And what he'd done for one of his projects is he went to all these abandoned um, state mental hospitals all across the country, and he photographed uh, the interiors and the exteriors. And um, it was a very powerful book. It's, it's all of photographs. And here it is, like, like I showed you earlier. Um, it says it's called Asylum Inside the Closed World of State Mental Hospitals. And uh, I was so blown away by his book and his photography that um, I figured uh, it was something I would like to try to do, to photograph. By then, the state hospital was mostly abandoned. Uh, the only building really functional at that point was the tube, where they had some, um, some child patients still, or children patients still. But um, so what I did was I went around the campus. Uh, I got clearance from the Department of Mental Health, the South Carolina Department of Mental Health to photograph the grounds. And um, I photographed the outsides. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I snuck in some of the buildings and photographed those as, as well. And the, it was very difficult um, to photograph. It was not great conditions, especially for a newcomer like me, because it's so dark in there. It's so dark in there, even in the middle of, uh, e- even in the, middle of the day. Um, because so many, there's so many curtains drawn and um, so many windows closed that uh, you can't see real well. So I returned a lot over the course of 2010 and 11 and, uh, to photograph the different buildings on Bull Street. And the more I went, the more I began to discover artifacts there and even patient records. And I found a lot of patient records and a, and a lot of books, annuals, uh, even slides and mini cassettes and that kind of thing. And the more um, I researched them and read them and the more researched outside of the place, you know, on my own in the computer, the more interested I became in exactly what went on there and what day to day life at the state hospital was like. 
because here's this gigantic campus right in the middle of downtown Columbia. And uh, for 150 years, it had basically been closed off to the general public. You had these high walls for, the, uh, for a lot of the history and um, a security guard at the front that wouldn't let anybody in unless you were a approved visitor. So nobody really knew exactly what went on there. Um, there was a mystique around Bull Street. Uh, people talked about it. You know, they spread rumors about it. But um, I was just shocked at how little was known about the place. And the more I researched about it, the more the more I learned there were just wasn't many weren't many records available to the general public about it. And and so this book, you're talking about stories from former employees. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, and the way I got to that was, um, I, it was just common sense to me, really. I, I, I thought, well, if I want to learn what exactly daily life on Bull Street was like, who better to interview than the employees who used to work there? And um, I mean, that just seemed like uh, the next step for me. And it seemed pretty obvious. So I um, called a woman at, uh, she was the media relations director over at the South Carolina uh, Department of Mental Health. Her name's Tracy LaPointe. And I asked her who she thought would be the best pe person to interview to start off this project, you know. And she said, um, she said a man named Woody Harris. And his chapter is the first one in the book. And he kind of led me to the next people to interview and then the next. But yeah, it was all employees. And so what's your writing style or your writing process for something like this? Do you like record the audios and then transcribe them? And how did you go about laying them out in the book? Well, you got to keep in mind that it didn't initially um, occur to me that this would be a book. Okay. I thought it would be a new series for the um, newspaper. I was writing for a chain of weekly newspapers in Spartanburg County and then later in Greenville County. Um, and I just thought it would be a new series type thing, you know, with maybe three or four entries. And um, so what I did was I do it old school. I do tape record everything. And then I transcribe the interview, which takes a long time. And it's, it's very tedious, as, as you probably know. But that way I don't make any mistakes. Um, that way I'm assured that I don't misquote anybody or anything like that. And if the person has any problem with the story or whatever or accuses me of such, I have the, I have the tape, tape documentation to um, back myself up. So I went to Columbia and interviewed Woody Harris, who worked in, um, whose office was in the Babcock building, and he worked at the state hospital many years. And he knew, um, he's kind of known as the historian of the state hospital, the living historian. And he told me all kinds of things, gave me a real good introduction to the place, even drove me around the campus, telling me what each building was used for. And um, when we were done with our interview, I asked him who the next people I should interview were. And he said, uh, Albert and Gertrude Metz, who were a very old couple. They're, um, they're both dead now. But uh, I interviewed them in 2010 as well. And the Metz had an incredible story. They actually both started working there at the State Hospital before World War II and, and didn't know each other. He was drafted into, the, um, into World War II. He disappeared for a while. When he came back, 
he started working there again at the state hospital and he met Gertrude during a um, state hospital employee dance. And the two married soon thereafter and were together all their, you know, most of their lives from their twenties on to, uh, they, uh, I think he almost made it to 90 and I know she did before she died. She was actually the head of nursing for a long time and he was the head of uh, fire safety. Wow. That's amazing. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, when, when I think of, you know, I have this visual of the images that you, you mentioned and, and it being dimly lit and difficult to get some images. So, um, how many, I, had, how, I had to shoot, shoot real slow. I bet. How, how many photographs? Are there a lot of photographs in the book and are they all yours or did you find some historical ones? Um, no, they are, they are almost all of mine. Um, all the ones of the abandoned buildings inside and out I took. The only ones that were provided to me are the pictures of the actual employees that I interviewed. And a lot of those were old nursing photos. Ideally, I wanted a picture or two of the time period when they were working there. And I wanted a, a picture or two of what they look like now. So I tried to get both of those inside each chapter. And then there's a, a center spread kind of in the middle of the book that has several pages of the photos I shot and they're all black and white. And I'm, I'm proud of how they came out. I really am. I think it really gives a, a sense and a mood about the place. And, you know, they're especially important to me because that's what really got me started in it to begin with. Definitely. And, and I'll remind uh -huh. folks that uh, your publisher is Arcadia Publishing and we will have a link on the episode podcast page so that people can, you know, take a look at the, the cover image and, and also um, if they want to purchase it, they can do that there online and also check with their local library to see if their local library has a copy. One thing I want to add real fast, Curtis, is not all the, um, not all the pictures are, are of just patient rooms and hallways and the, and the things you would uh, ordinarily consider. Um, you know, this was a big self-sustaining campus. And so, the patient, it was designed, and most state hospitals were designed this way, to where patients really didn't ever have to leave campus. They had their own um, barber shop inside these buildings. They had a general purpose hospital called, called the Burns Hospital there on the campus. So if they ever hurt themselves or fell ill, they could go to that. Um, they almost, unless they had a real severe situation, um, medical emergency or something, they didn't really have to leave the campus. So. So I, I tried my best to photograph some other things, you know, the, the piano, the rec room, the, um, the, uh, the, the beauty shop, the, the barber shop, those kind of things um, to show that it was, you know, a self-sustaining community. I really got that from Christopher Payne's book too. You can tell that he's got bowling alleys in his books. He's got, um, uh, you know, I know Cherry Hospital up in North Carolina had its own slaughterhouse. They raised their own cows, and so did uh, South Carolina State Hospital many years ago. One of the things that's come across my mind as we're talking is, I know you spoke to former employees, but did they ever, aside from their experience working there, did they give you any kind of other stories about patients or what it was like to be a patient there? Uh, yes, they did, um, because typically that's who, that, those are the only people they worked with. I mean, they worked under, you know, higher ups and they had colleagues and associates and that kind of thing. 
but mostly they worked with the patients um, on a day to day basis, all day, every day. And, you know, it includes the book. The book has stories about security. Uh, well, not security guards, but public safety officers. These people were policemen who worked there, kept, kept the campus safe, uh, worked with patients and staff. Um, I talked to numerous psychologists, numerous social workers, a couple doctors. So I tried to make it as diverse as I could. I also spoke to several what they were called mental health specialists. Um, back in the old days, they were referred to as nurses' aides. And they, I mean, they were on the front lines of this, um, of the hospital. And they worked with the patients a lot. They had to break up fights. They had to do a, do a lot of things. So they told me individual stories, sure. And their stories do in, include their um, interactions with the patients. Now, I did talk to at least a dozen patients as well. The problem with that was only one would let her, will let me use her name in the book. So there is a chapter about about a certain patient in the book, but um, I didn't want to use any other ones because they they were going to make me use aliases. And what that does is um, it kind of if you're using aliases, it kind of enables you to you can make anything up you you want because nobody can background check it. So I thought it would damage the credibility of the book. Now, I might write a follow-up. There's a good chance I'm going to write a follow-up that'll include, um, that'll actually be stories from former patients and former patient family members who would, um, who, who, who would go over to Bull Street and see lo their loved one, you know, on a regular basis. So that, that's the goal for the sequel. Fascinating. And, you know, when you've mentioned Bull Street, I, I know even from my childhood, you know, people didn't call it the South Carolina State Mental Hospital or they, they just kind of referred to it as, you know, you're going to get sent to Bull Street. You know, it was like not saying the name of the, the whole place, you know. You're absolutely right. And I've found that that um, colloquialism is very common throughout the whole U.S., uh, like in um, in Georgia, Georgia has a higher population than South Carolina, obviously, but they only have one state hospital as well, and um, it's called Central State Hospital, and it's in in the town of Milledgeville, Georgia, right? And uh, whenever it was, people would bring up the Central State Hospital, they would always refer to it as Milledgeville, and a lot of people only knew it as Milledgeville, and you're absolutely right about South Carolina. Nobody knew it as the South Carolina State Hospital. The only people who did, really, were the people who worked there and um, lawyers and reporters and doctors when, when they spoke up, but, you know, on the public record. Everybody um, individually, privately, it was always known as Bull Street. And um, even when I grew up, my grandma and my aunt, and a lot of times my mom would, would talk about Bull Street all the time, you know. And they, and 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 my uh, aunt would joke about, oh my God, you know, I'm going to have to go to Bull Street. And the children were driving her crazy. My grandma knew knew several patient people who went there over the years. They had a housekeeper who whose husband was there, and, and they would take her to go visit. I also had a great aunt that was there. Um, so I think the further you go back in, um, you know, in the generations, the more people seem to know about the state hospital and, and Bull Street. But my grandma never once referred to it as the state hospital. 
And uh, when I was trying to come up with a book, I was working with the publisher at Arcadia to come up with a name. Actually, it was really their choice more than anything. And putting it, uh, as you know, in the subtitle, it's South Carolina State Hospital, Stories from Bull Street. And I was, I was content and happy with that. But, uh, you know, some states, longer states like Tennessee and North Carolina, have two, have two state hospitals, one on the east and one on the west. Like in Tennessee, they have one in uh, Knoxville called Eastern, and they have uh, Western State Hospital is um, near Memphis in, in a place called Bolivar. And in North Carolina, they have one in uh, Morganton on the west side of the state, and then they have Cherry, which is in Goldsboro, North Carolina, which is in the state. But most of the places were known by, by their address or their town. It's amazing how those, uh, those kind of things work out. Um, so uh, if, if you have uh, maybe a little selection you'd like to read from, from one of the stories, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear that. Okay, I'll give you a little background here. This is actually um, chapter five in the book, and it's called Horror, Humor, and Healing. And it's about a woman named Ruth Westbury, who, who worked at the state hospital. She came to work there in the midnight. Now, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Ruth at a, at a book event, a book signing and talk uh, back in January when the, when the book first came out. And she's in good health. She's got to be in her 90s. I haven't officially calculated her age, but um, she's doing well. And her daughter brought her to the event. It was a pleasure to meet her. And I just love the chapter on her. So the, her background is she went to nurse, a nurse's training room in Charlotte. And uh, apparently she grew up in North Carolina. And they sent her, every nurse had to do three months of psychiatric training. All right. So basically almost every nurse uh, over the age of 50 or 60 in South Carolina had to do their time at the state hospital. But they sent, they sent Ruth Westbury up to New Jersey at the time in the early 1950s, which is when she was in nurses training, um, to work at the Veterans Administration Hospital there. And it was very, very rough. A lot, a lot of the patients um, were veterans who, were, who had returned World War II. And uh, she swore at the time she was never going to work in psychiatric ever. Well, she got married soon thereafter and went ahead and had her children, and, four children, and she raised them. And so by the time they were pretty much up and ready for college or whatnot, that's when she went back to work. And she applied, to, um, she applied for jobs at all kinds of places, all kinds of hospitals, but they wouldn't give her a job because she'd taken so much time off. So ultimately she applied to the state hospital and they took her right off the bat. And when she got there, it was uh, Valentine's day of 1966. And um, she came at a time when they were just starting to uh, racially integrate the hospital. Before this, they had, they had two hospitals. They had a Crafts Pharaoh campus that was called Palmetto Hospital. And that's where they get African-American patients. They kept all the white patients on Bull Street. Well, once they, when they integrated, they moved the black patients over to State Hospital, and they made the Crafts Faro campus, or the Palmetto Hospital, they turned that into a geriatric unit. So everything was, she referred to it as complete bedlam when she took over at the State Hospital. Um, she said uh, the patients were heavily met. 
the the white patients didn't want the black patients there and honestly the black patients didn't want to be there they wanted to go back to palmetto hospital she said it was just it was just wild um completely chaotic and she wanted to quit the same, the day she started but then she realized her supervisor left she had a change of heart and ultimately she realized that if she did leave she's no better than um the other people who were pulling out because times so she decided to stay and she ended up making a career of it there but uh, this this excerpt i'm gonna i'm gonna read is um from a little sub chapter inside the chapter and it's it's called uh, you have to love the patients it reads there is one incident that westbury uses to provide crucial insight into her education one day just before christmas a female patient attempted to give her a bottle of lotion when westbury informed her that nurses could gifts from patients the woman broke down lamenting that no one at the hospital would accept her gesture of kindness i learned there's a two-way street and why not be what you want? Letting people give to you is something that can make them very happy, Westbury said. I learned that even though the patients had their problems, they wanted to do something for someone. Westbury claimed such lessons made her a better, more understanding wife, mother, and daughter. Working there that mental illness was just as much an illness as physical illness, she reflected. You can give patients pills and they might control the symptoms, but they won't cure it. You have to love the patients and let them be themselves and feel like they are needed somewhere. And I think that was, a, a, that's a good, real good insight into the patients. And because, um, you know, it would be so tough being confined uh, to where, where you couldn't leave. And it would be such a helpless feeling, especially if you are medicated so much of the time. And I'm sure these patients wanted to feel normal and they wanted to feel useful. And I think that's really reflected in that excerpt there. And uh, Ruth Westbury learned a lot about the patients. And I have, uh, I have one more excerpt that really features how she, look, how she sees everything in hindsight. And it's written at the very end of her chapter. So let me read that real fast, Curtis, if you okay. She said, um, you know, what I was walking into when I applied at the state hospital, every day was a new lesson in life, calling, and I believe that firmly. I always said I wanted to be a pediatric nurse and that the last place I would work would be a psychiatric hospital. But I found out that psychiatric patients are a lot like children. They want to be understood and they want to know what's going on. It was a good life experience and I don't regret any part of it. So she was, um, she's a good example of some of the employees and the sacrifices they were willing to make to to help these patients to these patients and to make these patients feel better about themselves it is amazing those kinds of stories and i think we really tend to learn a lot and get a lot of insight into what it was like through these stories so uh thank you for reading that um since this is library voices, what kinds of library stories do you have? Did you come across anything that had to do with libraries or do you have any kind of personal library story you might want to share quickly? Um, well, I did do some research in the um, libraries all around the state, really, both online and, um, and in person going into them. Um, the most helpful was, although I didn't spend all that much time there, there's a, um, the South Carolina 
Department of Archives has their library in Columbia, and they have all kinds of um, more contemporary records of Bull Street and uh, as far as day-to-day -day life there. Now, they have so much, it's an, it's an overwhelming amount that I could never get through. One day I did go in there and I was just looking at the records. The forensics were there. Uh, there's, there's four or were four identical to the back of the campus um, called maximum security buildings. And one of them was the Cooper building. And that's, that was for um, basically the forensics ward for patients who were e either declared um, incapable of standing trial or they were considered guilty by reason of insanity and they, they couldn't put them in prison. So they kept them at the state hospital. And I, I read a records for there and it was unbelievable. Some of the things people were trying to sneak into the, uh, to the patient care. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but, uh, but that was very, very interesting. And um, I should have probably re returned a few times, but I could have easily become so obsessed with those, with those kinds of records and that kind of information that it, it might have actually delayed the writing process. But um, there's no doubt about it. I learned a lot um, through research through the library and especially going through old newspaper files, especially in the Aiken, the Aiken Standard and all of their coverage of the uh, state hospital over the years. Most of these were AP kind of stories. And so they ran throughout the state. It's just the Aiken Standard was one paper. I was able to get through this subscription service where I could check all the old records going all the way back, you know, the 40s and 50s. Yes, it's fascinating once you start it, getting into all of those different kinds of records and then you realize, oh, it's three hours later, you know. <laughs> oh, it's unbelievable how fast the day goes by. You're right. But I would like to, like I said, I'd like to get back to that library eventually because they, they do have all those records and most of them aren't available anywhere else. Uh, there's some of them on the, up on the web, and, but those, especially the annual report of the state hospital, uh, those are mostly going in, into the early part of the 20th century. And I'm, you know, this book's primarily about the second half of the century. Well, it's certainly fascinating, and I know our listeners are going to want to definitely check it out. Um, so as we wrap up, what kind of special or other projects Good, do you have coming up? Well, I do have an event coming up uh, November 12th um, that's going to be a free online talk and book chat, and it's hosted by the Sumter County Museum. It's going to be at 7 o'clock p.m. November 12th, and um, anybody who wants to wants to attend that event, online they need to register ahead of time but it's a easy process and you can do that by going to sunnymuseum.org and you can register there um and i'll just be talking more about the book and how it came to be in my experiences with the employees um i, t I got into it a little earlier about the follow-up book that I, I plan on writing. I, I haven't started it yet because I'm teaching two classes this semester and just haven't had much time to write, but it'll probably feature either um, both patient stories and stories of the patient families um, of, of their experiences there visiting uh, families while they were at Bull Street. Uh, the thing is, the thing is, you know, uh, talking about the book on, Facebook in particular, and at these events, I've been able to um, access people I, w I wasn't able to access beforehand. And um, they said, you know, they're willing to talk to me on the record. So I think there's voices that I can do that. 
it, it would probably be a couple of years before it came out, but, um, and I do work slowly because I do interview and transcribe everything. But um, I think there's definitely a, another good book there. That's great. I know that uh, all that transcribing and interviewing certainly is time consuming. So I know uh, we wish you the best of luck and, and thank we're you. eagerly awaiting that, uh, that second, second volume. So thank you so much for being with us and talking to us today. Oh, well, it's, it's been wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity, Curtis. Uh, I really uh, hold you guys in high esteem and I appreciate the work you do. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.